Welcome to Health or Consequences, a podcast of Commonwealth Magazine. My name is John McDonough. I'm from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and I'm joined by my erstwhile co-host, Dr. Paul Haddis from the Tufts School of Medicine. Welcome, John, and welcome to our guest. We'll hear from it a bit. This is our third podcast, and we try to do them on a monthly basis, give or take. I apologize for missing our second podcast with Andrew Dreyfus because I was down can being considered for jury duty, and so didn't happen. We noted you were in court that day, John. <laughs> so today we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Sandro Galea, who is the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health. Uh, part of our goal here is to bring familiar and well-known folks and also to bring people who we think people ought to know more about. And so Dean Galeo is an example of that for sure. Uh, Dean Galea uh, has uh, had previous appointments at Columbia University, University of Michigan, New York Academy of Medicine. He is a uh, what we call a double immigrant or an immigrant twice over. He was born in Malta, moved to Canada at the age of 14, and then came to the United States in his late 20s. Uh, he had a medical degree, degree from the University of Toronto, and with that license traveled to Somalia with doctors without borders. And it was there that he had the lightning moment where it occurred to him that he needed to, quote, leave the immediate gratification of medicine to labor in the vineyard of public health. So we have a variety of things we want to talk to you about. But first, um, Dean Galea, could you uh, uh, welcome to this program? And could you tell us just in your own words a little bit about your background and what's most important to you when you describe yourself to folks? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, uh, Paul and John. Um, well, I think you did a nice job of summarizing my background by way of chronology, but perhaps to try to tie it in together, I, um, I trained as a physician, as a primary care physician, and uh, with um, acute care medicine, which is in the Canadian system as family medicine, emergency medicine. And then I practiced in northern Canada, as you mentioned, in Somalia, but also in places like Papua New Guinea and Philippines, etc. And... I then shifted from acute care, primary care, into public health, which seems an odd shift, but in some respects I think it's a, there, there's a natural uh, coherence to it because as a primary care physician, particularly in acute care settings, you are sharply aware of what really shapes health and you are sharply aware, if you're paying attention, that what drives health is not so much the immediate experience, but a lifetime of experiences in the world around people and the context in which people live. And I was drawn to public health to study that, to try to understand how social, economic, physical circumstances ultimately shape the health of individuals and populations. And that's really been my academic career. And in my academic career, I've also had a lot of interest in trauma and its consequences, which I think also ties in very much to that, given how shaped by social economic environments trauma is. So I'd like to think that in my professional life, I have been consistently interested in how we can create healthier people, healthier populations by creating a world that generates health. So you have uh, been the author or co-author of about 800 plus scientific journal articles, 50 book chapters, 13 books. You have a new book coming out in May called Well. Um, what are, what are some of the big ideas that populate your mind in terms of what you try to articulate and get across 
Uh, you've talked about gun violence. You've written about uh, tobacco smoking. You've written about the role of corporations in society and their influence. What, what are some of the big ideas that are on your mind right now? Well, the new book, uh, Well, which is called What We Need to Talk About When We Talk About Health, is animated by a very simple observation, which is that in the United States, we spend more on our health care per capita than any country in the world, which you've discussed in this podcast, and all listeners will know that. But our health indicators are terrible. I mean, they're when you compare us to any other high-income country, which is a fair comparison, we are last on nearly all health indicators. And the question becomes, why is that? And perhaps another question is, can listeners think of any other sector where we spend more and get less? I, I would argue we would find it intolerable if our, let's say, our electronic devices were more expensive but worse than everybody else's. We, we simply do not put up with that. But we do in health. And the question is, why do we put up with that? Why is it that we have had a track record of worsening, and this is worsening, health indicators, relatively speaking, despite the fact that we keep throwing more and more money at the issue? And I think the answer to that is obviously complicated, and these answers are always complicated, but it really speaks to a shift in the past 30, 40 years in this country towards a very particular conception of a clinical, medical, curative first approach that really runs counter to this idea that our health ultimately is generated by the world around us. So that's what animates well. And um, in some respects, that is a series of thoughts which I've been having for really two decades coming through in multiple different ways you in say, my writing. You say 30 to 40 years ago. So you're talking about the 1980s when there that's was correct. a shift. That's correct. There was well, a shift. In what was the shift in the 1980s? Uh, people keep hypothesizing about something happened in the mm -hmm. 1980s. And what's your interpretation? Well, the data are very clear that there was a shift in the 1980s. And when you look at uh, our change in life expectancy, you see an inflection point that uh, American life expectancy started deviating from all the other high-income countries. The big shift politically in the United States was a um, an ascendance of what is broadly called neoliberal economic policies, which, I mean, the term is vastly imperfect and it means many things to many different people. But there's no question that there was an ascendance of a particular school of thought that ultimately put a lot more confidence, a lot more faith in uh, individual market-driven forces and started a systematic disinvestment from a more central investment in resources that keep us all healthy. In, uh, I think it's a bit of a fool's game to try to say, can we isolate a single cause that ultimately determined the course of the next 30, 40 years? Because it's never any one cause. But politically, geopolitically, and nationally, there is no question that that's what the early to mid-80s portended. You know, in addition to uh, schools of thought, there's real schools that you've been involved with. You've been in Boston now as the dean of the BU School of Public Health for five years, and you've been asked nationally, actually, to take a leadership role amongst the schools and programs that do public health education formally at our universities about helping to, to plot uh, sort of a future direction. W what are your current thoughts about uh, the state of public health education and where it ought to be going? Well, I think my thoughts on the state of education really reflect my thoughts on the state of where public health should be going. I've written about this in the context of what I think should be the aspirations of public health. If, if you follow my previous set of comments, I think the aspirations of public health should be to engage in 
creating a healthier world, to really engage with the social, economic, political forces that generate the world around us, that influence the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, how we think, feel, and behave. Mm -hmm. And when you think of the role of public health that way, a lot of things fall out from that. It, it, it casts a certain direction for the science, but it also casts a certain direction for schools of public health and the kind of curricular engagement that they should have. I think it suggests the need for an interdisciplinary education, the need for a pragmatic education that combines not only rigor in the fundamentals of the science, but also rigor in understanding how policy is shaped, understanding how the conditions of the world around us are shaped so that we can train students with a depth of understanding, but also with facility in a pragmatic engagement with the, the, the task that I'm labeling as creating a better world. And that is actually a, a different orientation to an education than, say, the education which I had. Explain how, how it's evolved in that way. Well, historically, the uh, canonical training in public health, which is a master of public health, is um, it, it, it used to be a, uh, a degree in any number of disciplinary sets in epidemiology, which is what my training was in, or biostatistics or environmental health. But this kind of thinking says that the interesting questions lie at the interstices of disciplines. Uh, obesity is not any one discipline's domain. Climate change is not any one discipline's domain. Building healthier cities is not any one discipline's domain. So we, it, once we recognize that those are the problems, we can take one of two approaches. One is we can say, well, we'll just keep teaching the way we are and hope that the students connect the dots. Or, and I would suggest that this is perhaps a better approach, is to say, how can we structure curricula to generate ideas and train students in a way that they can be ready with ideas so they can enter a workforce where they can make their mark? Well, let's talk about those students entering the workforce and some of the places they go are, is the healthcare system and delivery system, and they're taking with them, I think, in, in your, you know, teaching them well, that there is this language of social determinants of equity, social determinants of health that are out there. But in the healthcare field in particular, the delivery field, where they talk about population health, and while they're working on, on things called health-related social needs, they sometimes confuse all these terms together. Uh, can you help us with that for sure. a moment? Sure. Yeah, let's start with social determinants of health, because it, the term has uh, become shockingly common in the past, really with an acceleration in the past five years. So first of all, I never used the term social determinants of health in my writing, and I would like it to go away. Now, why is that? The reason is because I think all determinants of health ultimately are social. I mean, they're social or economic. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the, the only distinction in the word social is that they're things that are outside the skin. So perhaps it's better to say determinants of health outside the skin versus biologic determinants. And I, the reason I worry about the term social determinants is because it, in some respects, it consigns to a corner a particular set of determinants that somehow seem different than everything else. So I would say we're interested in determinants of population health, whatever those may be. And, and that may be the question of why it is that I smoke or why it is that I smoke because you, my friend, are smoking or why it is that we are living in a world where cigarettes are even legal. I mean, these are all determinants of health. My health behavior, our behavior as friends, or the policies that ultimately lead us to accept the production of a substance that kills people. These are all determinants of health. Mm -hmm. So that's at the determinants of health level. Now, you talked about social needs. I think we frequently then conflate this with what I would consider to be more social service delivery. So, for example, 
giving people housing or taxi vouchers. Now, these, uh, that's important. We need to have that. But the problem with those approaches is that they elide an engagement with the real fundamental issue. If, if we are plugging the gap by, let's say, giving people taxi vouchers, the fundamental question should be why people need taxi vouchers to begin with. And that is ultimately what gets at the determinant of health. And I think in some respects, in the book Well, I talk a bit about the challenge of compassion and compassion versus charity. The United States is blessed with an abundance of charity where people with means typically feel bad about people without means and they invest in and engage in giving away handouts so that people without means can get by. And that's charity. But charity is not compassion. Compassion is saying, why is the world uneven to begin with? And what can we do structurally so that people do not need those handouts to begin with? So I think the, that's this, the, what you're calling social needs or called social welfare. I'm much more interested in a compassionate approach to the full range of determinants of health. I'm much more interested in saying, how is it that we can understand what structures the production of health in our society so we can actually create a healthier world? Let's, let's bring this conversation about health and health care. Uh, down to Massachusetts a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Massachusetts has had a major effort going back at least through 2012 in terms of controlling the rate of growth of health care costs in the state. It's been the number one priority, the number one fixation, the Health Policy Commission, other agencies, the Attorney General. And to some extent, it seems to me that while we talk a lot about the cost of health care, we miss a conversation around health and public health mm-hmm. and the health of the population. Um, if you look at, for example, uh, our, our health stats versus the rest of the United States, the other 50 states, we always look very good. But actually, if you compare in Massachusetts, if it were its own nation, to some of those industrialized countries, we still come out near the bottom for most of them. And so I'm wondering, do you get a sense as an observer of Massachusetts health policy that we're on the right track and that we're having the right conversations and discussions here. Yeah, and I I, I think that's an outstanding question. And and John, if I may, I would edit your question just by one word because you asked me about Massachusetts health policy. I'm much more interested in Massachusetts policy because if if you follow the thread of my logic, if we're trying to create a healthier world, we need to pay attention to policy that influences public transportation and housing and early childhood education and parks and recreation and environment. Those are all policies about traditionally non-medical factors that matter for health. And when you look at Massachusetts spending over the past 15 years, we have been decreasing our spending proportionately on all of these factors. So, in fact, we've been increasing our spending on healthcare, despite what you say, an attempt to to control those costs. And so arguably, we are doing ourselves a disservice in the larger picture of generating health. So Massachusetts, you're correct, tends to be in one of the top two or three states across the country, but we still lag behind many of our peer countries. That's entirely correct. And the reason for that, I think, is because of our disinvestment in these other forces that generate health. The other aspect which we haven't brought up here, so just to bring it up, is that through a disinvestment in these other forces, we create inequities. We create enormous inequities. And Massachusetts has these inequities. Boston has these inequities. I mean, you can, with, within one or two miles apart, you find two or threefold inequities in uh, health outcomes, which are driven pretty clearly by uneven distribution of resources and by the 
undue burden of ill forces in particular parts of cities and particular parts of the state. And, and th there is no way around it that if we are to tackle these forces, one needs a much more systematic engagement with the forces that generate health. Mm -hmm. So since 2012, the mm -hmm. number one health policy objective of the state has been to stay within the benchmark rate of growth for health care costs that was established in the 2012 cost containment law. And so every year we go through a massive process of looking at that, reviewing it, grinding our teeth when it goes a little bit above, mm -hmm. giving applause when it goes below. I just, it just occurs to me that we're, we're, we're missing an important point with the heavy fixation on that to the exclusion of just about everything else that you mentioned. I think we're missing the whole point. Uh, and uh, I, um, I don't want to be too hard on Massachusetts. I feel very privileged to live in Massachusetts, frankly. If I were to choose a state to live in, I would choose Massachusetts. That's why I'm here. Um, but I do think that Massachusetts, despite its relative enlightenment, is also behind in wrapping its brain around this simple notion that to generate health, we need a careful look at all these other non-health factors, that ultimately these factors all matter to health. And you know, the environment is sort of is an easy one to wrap one's brain around, that an investment in health care means an investment in controlling asthma. An investment in health means an investment in clean, efficient energy so that you do not have polluting vehicles, so that people do not have worse asthma to begin with. I mean, that's a very, very simple illustration. One could go on and on. And return on investment analyses, although the science on this is not as good as it should be, is pretty clear that investment in, just to keep building on this particular example, clean, energy-efficient vehicles so that we do not have asthma to begin with is much more efficient of an investment or resource than is treating asthma. But that's not how we think, and our system is geared to trying to control the asthma episodes. The, the other aspect of this is that in, when, when our focus is on healthcare or medicine, we focus on the pathology on the, on the patient, and I'm using the word patient intentionally here because the human intersects with the healthcare system as a patient, not as a person, but as a patient. And the patient is a 45-year-old woman with asthma, and we... The, the clinician, understandably, needs to treat her asthma. But the clinician is in no position to take a step back and say, why does she have the asthma? What in her childhood was she exposed to that triggered her asthma? But the, the clinician cannot be expected to do that. The clinician's job is to treat the asthma. But it is our collective job to go back and say, what is it in her childhood and what is it that we can do now to prevent today's children from having asthma when they're 45? Is public health doing a good enough job making the case? Well... You have me on your show, which, presum <laughs> which presumably <laughs> is in part trying to help public health make the case. Um, do I think public health is doing a good enough job? So I've, I've written about what I've called this, um, this mismatch, this health mismatch. And the mismatch is as follows, is that we care about our health and we spend a lot of money on our health and we get much less out of it than we should. And what I've said is there are two reasons for this. Reason A is our science and scholarship, that I do not think that in population health science, which, by the way, I think is the fundamental science of public health, we have paid enough attention to understanding how non-medical forces shape health. And the second one is that we have not been good enough at generating the narratives and the conversation such that this is well understood. One of the party tricks that I've written a little bit about, which I suggest that all listeners try, is at a dinner party or at a bar, start a conversation about health. Anything. You can say, 
you know, I heard this uh, uh, talk about environment and health and put out a watch and see how long it takes for that conversation for somebody to use the word healthcare and health interchangeably. And I promise it'll be in, in less than five minutes. It's always less than five minutes. And that, I think, speaks to the clumsiness of our conversation around health and healthcare because we conflate the two. And there's many reasons why we conflate the two. So insofar as it is public health's job to make it clear what generates health, then no, we're not doing a good enough job. Let me pick up on a string of that. Uh, if in that, say, bar, I guess might be an interesting bar, we sort of turned to talking about research and prevention in, in a very, uh, in a state like ours, very heavily focused in the, the biopharma, biomedical world. Uh, would you end up talking more about personalized medicine and genomics than you would about community health mm. strategies at a community level, population health strategies there. Give me your thought about the research investment. Sure. So there are three questions in there, Paul. Yeah. So let me let me tackle them one by one. Okay. Let's start with prevention first. So I would ask listeners to say, what kind of world would you rather live in? A world where there is treatment for your Alzheimer's or a world where you don't get Alzheimer's to begin with? Everybody says, well, I don't want to get Alzheimer's to begin with. Then you look at our spending on prevention. And uh, we broadly, we spend about 3% of our healthcare dollars on prevention, which is e enormously different than what we actually want to see. So the question is, why is that? Now, there's many reasons for it. And by the way, that spending on prevention is true for both of the public sector and the private sector. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that we, the in, we have incentives that are baked in the system that, um, that reward short-term gains. And of course, prevention is a much longer-term gain. Now... You asked the other question, which is about precision medicine and, and that uh, line of thinking. I want to be very clear. I'm actually a big fan of discovery science, and I've published a lot of academic papers, many of which fall in the, in the label of discovery science. And I think the pursuit of better understanding genetic molecular forces that generate um, disease as a result can, can lead to cure is very exciting. It's going to lead to a lot of insights. But that is different than saying, what is it that's going to generate health? And I would argue, and I am arguing throughout this conversation, that when we stop and think about it, we care much more about generating health than what we actually do. And the precision medicine juggernaut is, in part, takes us down a particular path. And it's not a, I'm not saying it's a path that we should not go down. It has some down. value. It certainly. has some value. We should do something about it, but it should not in any way blot out everything else I'm saying. And my concern about the, uh, the precision medicine approach is that it has dominated the health conversation. In fact, if you, think about it, if you think about the past 10 years in the national health conversation, the big conversations have been the ACA, Obamacare, and its antecedents and its consequences, the precision medicine initiative, and to a lesser extent, the brain initiative slash cancer moonshot. All of these are clear deep dives into a clinical approach or a molecular diagnostic approach to things. And none of them take into account these broader factors. Now, of course, the ACA was the right thing to do. And of course, investing in discovery science is the right thing to do. My quibble is with the fact that this is all we're doing. And, and when you look at the extraordinary amount of spending that we're doing on our particular approach, there's a lot of money around that we can do different things with. And if we think about health differently, and what I'm arguing for is we need to talk about health differently, it will shift what we're doing. Remember, and none of you have asked me right now, so if I'm, I'm going to ask myself the question. Um, why is it that every headline in the country 
is not about the fact that this is the worst downturn in our life expectancy since the 1918 flu pandemic. We've had, for listeners who don't know this, we've had a decrease in life expectancy for three years in a row, which the, the last time that happened was in 1918, the flu pandemic. So we are now sitting here in a podcast about health or about healthcare, as you as you label it, and we are arguably living through a moment which should cause serious alarm. Now, we haven't been that alarmed by it in the public conversation, and we should be alarmed by it. Now, even more alarming, the downturn life expectancy in the past three years has has cut up about cut cut away about one year of life expectancy. But since the 1980s, we've lost about five years of life expectancy compared to other high-income countries. Wow. So th- th- these data, I find rational, smart people, when they hear them, they sort of raise their eyebrows and say, oh, wow, well, actually, I never thought of it that way. So I suppose part of my mission is to make sure that we all think of it that way. So there's one aspect of this that you've written about mm-hmm. that we haven't talked about here, and that's the role of uh, for-profit corporations mm-hmm. in this. You note that uh, in one of your papers that uh, the major behavioral risk factors that account for about a third of deaths worldwide and also in the United States are alcohol, drugs, tobacco, poor diet, for example. And all of those are promoted by and developed and profited for the benefit of commercial entities. And so you've done some critical analysis looking at the role of corporate behavior in terms of distorting public policy. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the observations and conclusions that you've reached in terms of, uh, in terms of investigating this piece of the health landscape of the United States? Yeah, I uh, think that when you say that health is generated by social conditions, economic conditions, physical infrastructure around us, you have to appreciate that a lot of those conditions are shaped by the private sector. They're shaped by the private sector, shaped by the public sector. So it seems to me perfectly reasonable to say the private sector and the public sector, they're both important for generating health. So then the question becomes, what is it about the private sector that generates health? And notice I'm being very careful here. I'm not in any way saying corporations harm health. No, I think the private sector corporations generate behaviors that are harm health or promote health. And uh, the question what I've tried to tackle is, what is it about corporate behavior, corporate practices that can generate health. I'm, I'm, I'm very much more interested in the positive. And uh, you, know, you, you, you talked about particular products that ultimately are generated by, by the private sector. And let's take one product, which is cars. Cars are generated by the private sector. One of the largest health success stories of the past century is about a 400-fold decrease per, per vehicle mile driven in mortality from cars. Why did that happen? You know, it's not because we made our drivers better. It's not because government-mandated Drivers, ed programs made drivers better. For any of you who have driven in Boston, you know it's not the case. No, it's because our cars have become safer. Our cars have created, given us the freedom from dying in our cars. So that's a real, to my mind, success story of the private sector generating health. So I think the private sector partners, private sector partners are by and large good people who actually want, given a choice, would rather take a choice that generates health than not. I think that's true for let's say, uh, car manufacturers. It's also through for, let's say, architects and builders who, given a choice, will generate buildings that will, will, will create buildings that will generate health. You know, f- m- most often, what I've found in my conversations is that people in different sectors do not know this because we do not have this kind of conversation that generates health. Now, within a certain element of people who think about health, there is um, 
always skepticism, say, well, aren't there bad actors in the corporate world? Yes, of course there are bad actors, but there are bad actors in the public sector as much as they are in the private sector. I want to ask you about, though, when, when bad actors do appear and they intersect uh, with our, potentially with our educational institutions or significant healthcare providers, there's one in the news now involving uh, uh, Attorney General Healy asserting in court that Purdue Pharmaceutical, for example, used, um, well, it, she's charging them with uh, misleading everyone about OxyContin's addictive qualities, but in her complaint names the fact that one of the ways that Purdue tried to help mislead the world was by uh, having better relationships through grant monies to Mass General Hospital, to Tufts Medical School, where I'm employed. Any reflections on, on uh, what those kinds of institutions ought to be doing uh, when they do have news about corporations that doesn't appear like uh, those corporations are always acting in the public's interest to improve health? I think the question of um, corporate giving to not-for-profit entities like universities is truly complicated. There are guidelines, which are reasonable guidelines, about um, how that giving should be structured. But what I've learned in my years of leadership in academic institutions is that guidelines really are a very small part of it. Ultimately, it requires judgment and, um, and, and people of good intention working together to make sure that these relationships are structured in such a way that they move away from the, the conflicts that I think any reasonable person can imagine mm -hmm. can happen. So mm -hmm. I don't know enough about the particular structuring of the Purdue-Tufts relationship, for example. Mm -hmm. And the, the, I think anyone listening could say, well, there could be obvious conflicts there. There can be, but not necessarily. I think it depends on how it's structured and what the terms of the relationship are. And one other, I think, useful rule of thumb is it also depends on what the resources are for. That uh, recently, I think not unreasonably, soda companies have um, and universities have come under some criticism for, let's say, funding obesity research. And to my mind, it's one requires a very careful engagement if you're going to have a company whose principal product is obesogenic funding obesity research. I would be very wary about something like that. But it's a very different matter altogether if the funding is structured in such a way that it generates opportunities for research in other areas. So the bottom line is that I think the private sector plays an important role in funding not-for-profit organizations of all stripes. This falls under the category of charity that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, I think that should be respected, rewarded, and applauded. But it should only be engaged in in a way that is truly eyes wide open about the challenges that it embeds. So final question. Mm. That's going to be a good one. Then. We have academics like Steven Pinker from Harvard mm. who see sunshine and silver linings around every mm. cloud and everything's great. And we have others who see the problems of climate change, inequality, life expectancy, so many other things that can drive one down a pretty pessimistic path. How, how are you? Are you an optimist or are you pessimistic? Mm. How would you characterize your own frame of reference looking at the extraordinary historical problems that we're facing around the globe right now? I consider myself a radical optimist. I, um, we can't forget that for most of human existence, life expectancy was about 40. Life expectancy jumped from 40 to now 80 in many countries over the course of the past 150 years. So I would much rather be living today than at any other point in human history. I think it's uh, extraordinary. And uh, so I think this is really the best time in human history to be living. And 
the is it, it is a real privilege to be able to say from that vantage point, how can we get even better? Be, being in the best point in history on health in no way means that we should get complacent. And in fact, I think part of what's going on right now is we have become complacent, that we have allowed a particular way of thinking that is chipping away at hard-won health gains. And I don't think that we should allow that to be the case. Okay. Dean Galea, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. And I, I uh, second my, my thanks. And uh, next month, we plan to have our podcast with Manny Lopes, uh, Executive Director of the East Boston Neighborhood Health Center. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Thank you.